Nexa, formerly known as Answer One, is a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for law firms. Learn more by giving them a call at 800-267-9371 or online at nexa.com. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hello and welcome to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels podcast. I'm Jason Taché, a legal affairs writer at the Journal. Today we're talking about how to mine a statute and build a legal practice, which my guest knows plenty about. Tor Eklund is the managing partner at Tor Eklund Law in New York City, which he founded in 2011. While the firm has become internet famous for its defense of numerous hackers, that wasn't always the plan. Tor, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to start back at the beginning. You left Sidley Austin in 2011 to strike out on your own. So do some scene setting for us. Where were you at in your career at that time, and where did you want to go? I was a fifth-year litigation associate in the New York office of Sidley Austin. I had been working on complex commercial litigation for about five years, which mainly consisted of doing a lot of doc review. <laughs> you know, I've got to work on some litigations, but you don't get a lot of practical uh, courtroom experience as a, a junior associate at a big law firm in New York. So I was, um, you know, kind of unhappy and um, it was sort of a mutual, you know, parting of the ways. And, you know, I had some money saved up uh, after I got I left Sidley in spring of that year, but then around the fall, that money started uh, to run out. So that was when I really, uh, that's that's what really lit the fire of me just starting my own practice. It's just, you know, necessity. And so when you started that practice, what was the vision at the time? I really wanted to do trials. I loved what little contact I had gotten with the courtroom through Sydney. They said they had an excellent uh, pro bono program where they partnered up with a local nonprofit that would take corporate associates and uh, get them to represent indigent women in family law matters. And so I ended spending a lot of time up in Bronx family court, which um, is a very good place to learn how to litigate and throw an elbow. And I just wanted more of it. So I set up sort of with the mindset that I really just wanted to get a trial, which is a hard thing to get these days because they're rare and rare, but I didn't know how. So then what, what does the story then end up looking like? You know, you have this desire to get into court, uh, you have your own firm. What, what was the learning curve those first couple of years? Oh, it's really intense because as a matter of fact, if you think about the fact that 90% of lawyers in this country own their own law firm, and that the bigger firms are sort of like an exception to that. It's a little shocking to me in retrospect that law school actually doesn't teach you how to manage a law firm. You aren't taught the first thing about running a small business or how to handle clients. Like there's no first-year law school class called the client. There's no first-year law school class about marketing your firm or how to close a sale. Yeah, that's what we all 
have to do if you've got a small law firm. And so, and the bar associations and everything, they don't really focus on that part of it because it's almost like the business aspect is a certain sense is, is considered dirty or like unpure. And I don't know why that uh, mindset is in place, but law school certainly doesn't help with it. So very much was, uh, didn't have a clue on how to do this stuff, but I knew enough to know that it was an, it's a networking business. So one of the first things I did is I started going to all the holiday parties and all sorts of events, which, you know, might sound like a lot of fun. Oh, you're going to parties, you're going to events, but it's actually a lot of work because you're not drinking at these things. You don't want to be wasted at these things. And so, but at one of these events, I met somebody who had just started a business and was looking for a lawyer and uh, she became my first paying client, you know, just doing, I was just doing transactional work with her. And then, um, you know, I kept at it. And then this, I got my first trial through uh, just kind of luck, basically. So that's interesting. I think there's a lot of discussion right now uh, to the very point that you're making is that law schools aren't preparing students for the business side of practice. I'm curious, uh, I guess this question comes in, in two forms. One, were there any particular resources that you found particularly helpful as you were trying to muddle through that uh, initial process as you were getting the firm off the ground? And then two, um, were there any assumptions that you had going into this process uh, that proved just bore out to be entirely wrong? Um, as you continued your outreach and, and went to these networking events? In terms of the resources, at first, there were none. <laughs> doesn't there Now I know that there's, you know, um, businesses that cater to teaching management skills to law firms, but it's still not the focus. And where I was naive, and I think where law school makes you naive on the business front, is it gives you the impression that you can, if you just sit down and you read a bunch of cases and you know you write a good brief, that's all the practice of law is about. And maybe that's the case with law professors, but actually running a business is not an easy thing to do. And um, so I was naive on that front. And I, you know, law school doesn't teach you about difficult clients or clients who've been through trauma or clients who are lying to you, um, all of which you come across in practice. And the other thing that law school gives the false impression is that it's just about the case law. Whereas unless you're an appellate lawyer, uh, you know, which I am too, like, the case law is like a really, really small part of your practice. Yet the focus of law school is almost exclusively on case law. And it's in edited cases where they're actually taking out a lot of the things that a practicing lawyer wants to know, like the standard review on appeal and that kind of stuff, or how it how the case ended up in this procedural posture. And you're presented with these cases that as if all the judges are always reasoning perfectly and there's some super geniuses. So when you get out the actual practice and you get a court where the judge isn't a genius, ours maybe got the law wrong or uh, can't handle their docket as uh, you know, most courts in this country, I think, are just overwhelmed and underfunded when it comes to that. You get an entirely different picture of the law. And so a lot of that first couple of years was learning how things really are. 
And I didn't feel like there were a lot of resources on that. I feel like there's a lot of CLDs on, you know, lots of games related to whatever ethical questions there might be about your practice or, you know, arcane areas of con law and whatnot, but nuts and bolts practice stuff. Just, I didn't feel like it was out there for me to use. And, you know, it's unfortunate because the number one reason, you know, lawyers, you know, violate the uh, client trust account, right, is because they mismanage their firm. And you get all sorts of expectations from, you know, the bar associations about how, you know, the uh, trust account is the third rail of attorney practice, but yet you don't get a single financial management class from any of those organizations. And to me, that's indicative of sort of this wrongly placed mindset that business and sales is something dirty that lawyers shouldn't talk about, you know, which, I mean, you could write a book about that. So, so within those first years, as you're, you know, kind of resourceless trying to figure out all of these things, were there any assumptions that you did have uh, at the start that just proved to be off base once you got into the weeds of uh, running a, a small firm? Yeah, that it would be easier <laughs> than it actually was. Sure. You know, and that, uh, you know, once that the marketing would be easy, that the um, getting clients would be easy and, you know that you know, managing employees would be easy. It's, you know, running a firm is, is a very, you have to be a leader and you have to collaborate with people. And law school really doesn't teach that. Law school teaches you to be solipsistic and read a case and write a memo uh, or, you know, a motion, and, you know, which are important skills to have. But, the primacy that that is given in law school, as opposed to the lack of primacy <laughs> of that kind of activity in uh, in the practice and actual practice of law, is is start is quite big, and um, that's where I would say I was like naive uh, in that front of just how much you know elbow grease you have to put in to just running a business, you know. That's not just reading some words on paper and writing something and then maybe getting a good grade on the one essay you do in your law school class, right? Um, so I, I sort of I, it, I've come to the opinion sort of that law schools have ruined the practice of law, mm-hmm. and um, I don't say that lightly because I enjoyed law school and I, I like the intellectual challenges that the law poses, but I. I honestly think one of the reasons trial is dying in the United States, it's not just that everyone's taking pleas, it's that people come out of law school completely unprepared to do a trial. And none of the professors who teach at those schools have any trial experience. And that's, I think, having profound consequences to our jury trial rights. And I think it's affecting the judiciary because you're seeing judges now being put on the federal bench who have no trial experience. And, and I think it's all because people are really scared to do trials because they're really, really hard. And they, they come out of law school with no zero training on that front. What little they might have gotten from trial ad teams are not always that good. They're just based on these cliches again. So, you know, there's a whole other subject for a book.
Well, and, and that's interesting because, you know, this is clearly the thing that motivated you uh, to leave Sidley Austin to strike out on your own. And and so I'm I'm curious within, you know, this learning curve that you've been talking about and starting your own business and your own practice, um, at what point did you and uh, your partner, Mark Jaffe, turn to hacker law, essentially, as a, a place to maybe stake your claim? That happened you know, by chance, the opportunity presented itself and we ran with it. And what, what happened is um, in December of 2011, Occupy Wall Street was was raging in New York. And my wife at the time is a photojournalist who was covering the event. And uh, she met somebody at OWS who uh, basically told her that he wanted to fire his federal defender and was looking for a lawyer to represent him in a federal criminal trial. She came home and told me that. I looked him up. I was like, oh, this looks interesting. And I really just want a trial. I um, met him. I told him that I'd never done a federal criminal trial before, but I'd do his for free. And he agreed. And then it turned out to be a really, really big packing case and that we ended up winning uh, unanimously on appeal. And, um, you know, like I also to press attention and, and people started calling. And from that opportunity, uh, we just ran with it because I, I find the space fascinating. I find, I think that in the 21st century, information warfare is, well, it's what's happening right now. And that there's a, a big, there's a war going on over control of information, whether that's the state that wants to control it, criminal gangs who want your personal information, whether it's, it's a corporate entity like Google that wants to control your information. The, the warfare of the 21st century is information warfare. And these cases that I'm lucky to be part of, I think, are very much on the front lines of that. So as soon as I got the opportunity, I fell in love with what I was doing and that led me to more cases in that area but like i to, to in that i just started taking them because i just wanted i wanted to it was sort of like a double focus i wanted just to do as many trials as i could so i took trials nobody else would take i took them for free um you know i lost a lot of money doing um pro bono cases for people in california for matthew keys and Eve's case in new jersey i i just would go all over the country repping people whether they could pay me or not at first to get the experience and that has paid off as painful as it was early on it's paid off in the long term because i you know i've got the experience and the reputation now because of it but you know you have to be willing to take the risk you have to be willing to fail you have to know how to fail and get up and in both in business and in the courtroom and that's I think another reason why you see trial dying is because if, if you can't take a direct hit in court and get right back up, then you can't be an effective trial lawyer because you're getting your ass handed to you, you know, a lot of the time in the courtroom and you got to be able to get up and fight. And it's the same thing uh, with running a business. You have to be able to, you know, get up and figure out how you're going to make the payroll, how you're going to pay the taxes, how you're going to you know, do X, Y, and Z. And that's not um, just sitting at a desk and, and reading cases. It's scary and it's difficult and it's um, uh, anxiety producing, you know, so it's a, 
that's interesting, this idea of, of needing to know how to take a hit uh, and, and to get back up either in court or in the business of law. Um, I'm curious, you know, we've talked a little bit already about how law schools from an educational perspective aren't preparing students uh, for the business of law or even trial, in your opinion. But I'm curious, this idea of taking a hit and getting back up, is that in your view, a temperament thing that people are either born with or with not? Or is that a thing that's teachable? I think it's teachable. I think it's very, very teachable. Um, I am very much a believer in the ability of people to change themselves. I mean, I think I was, you know, my temperament's always been sort of like, okay, I'm just going to um, kick so much. <laughs> like, you know, I'm like used to it, right? But, um I think anybody can do it, you know, I just, but you have to, you just got to work at it and you can't punish yourself when things don't go the way you wanted or that thing you thought was brilliant. was going to work out. Didn't work out. Like that was something too. I've learned on the journey is like, you know, okay, well, whatever. It didn't work right next. Right. Like I'm always like, well, what's your next song, so to speak? Like, the, you know, the rappers are always, you know, people are always like, treat every song like it's your first song, like you're unknown. And that's how I try to, uh, you know, um, approach everything. And I'm always, uh, you know, when people are talking about one of my cases, I'm always trying to be working on the next one or be two or three cases down the line. Because another one of my greatest fears is being like a one hit wonder. And I don't, uh, you know, I, you know, a lot of people say this, it's a bit of a cliche, but you always have to stay hungry. Um, and for me, what helps me stay hungry is I really love what I do. And I didn't, although I value the experience I had at big law and, um, you know, I have a lot of friends still there. I go to the reunion and stuff like that. That wasn't the place for me. I wasn't a good fit for that. And I was very, very unhappy. And, uh, now I'm very happy. I get to do what I do. It's challenging. And, um, that. I'm a lawyer that's happy and I look at my profession and I see a lot of unhappy lawyers. Um, that's something that makes me sad um, because, you know, there's a lot of untapped potential there in, in people. I mean, you don't have to be miserable as a lawyer. You know, it's, I mean, that's easier said than done. And I had to go through a lot of misery to get to the point where I was happy. But, you, you know, I mean, if I can do what I've done, anybody can do it. That's how I feel. And before we continue our conversation, a quick message from our sponsor. If you're missing calls, appointments, and potential clients, it's time to work with Nexa Professional. More than just an answering service, Nexa's virtual receptionists are available 24-7 to schedule appointments, qualify leads, respond to emails, integrate with your firm software, and much more. Nexa ensures your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800 800- Two six seven nine three seven one, or visit them at nexa.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. And we're back. And so going back a little bit as, as you are kind of on that path to happiness that you're talking about through the work that you're doing and, and finding your way, one of the uh, you know, a big part of that for a new firm is, is reputation, as, as you said earlier. And one of your earliest cases um, was a criminal hacking case of uh, an individual named Andrew Arnheimer, uh, who also went by the name Weave 
who received a lot of press attention, not in part from the fact is that, at least in the Southern Southern Poverty Law Center's terms, they called this individual a neo-Nazi white supremacist, infamous for his internet trolling and extremely violent rhetoric advocating genocide of non-whites. And I'm, I'm curious, you're, you're early on in this uh, journey through your new practice. What type of effect, positive or negative, did defending someone uh, like Weave do for your reputation? Like, did the reputation of the client matter as much as the subject matter? I'm curious how that played out for you. That's a really good question. It almost exclusively had a positive effect. Not in that, you know, it had a, like an endorsement of Weave's views, but in this country, people understand defense lawyers obligation to represent unpopular clients. And uh, because when I look back, I haven't really ever been attacked for representing him. And I think the other thing that helps on, on that front is that it was, I, I very much still believe this, it, it was a case where the government was going after somebody who was unpopular in an attempt to uh, gain an expansive interpretation of this computer law that would broadly criminalize large swaths of what most people consider to be normal computer behavior. I mean, in essence, the issue in the case, uh, Weave's case, uh, was whether or not doing a Google search would end up potentially being a felony for you. Because what he was accused of was really not that different from a routine Google search. And you coming across something on the internet that's not password protected, that's open, you know, open on the public internet, and then somebody getting upset that you came across it. Because what they just did is they just downloaded 114,000 email addresses from a publicly facing server. And, you know, for that, they put him up on felony computer crime counts. So the fact that I nobody really held it against me, I got a few comments, you know, you always get somebody, there's always a player hater out there. You know, it's another tip I have is don't listen to the player haters, because all they're doing is complaining, they're not doing anything else, uh, just focus on your work and don't, don't stray from the way. Like when everything's going crappy, when everything's just the whole world's attacking you, you just focus on your work. Just focus on the work. You know, that's how you deal with everyone attacking you and everything going wrong and you making a mistake. Just work, you know, and that's, you know, pulled me through a lot of stuff. But I didn't really get attacked. It, it, if anything, it just it, it got me in the press and what it, what it may West say. You know, it doesn't matter what they're saying about you as long as they're talking about you. Uh, and, and people understood, you know, that I was a defense lawyer and, one final thing on that, you know, a lot of people, some people, not a lot of people, some people have said to me, like, how can you, you know, you know take that kind of case? And I'm like, hey, listen, man, I wanted to do a trial, a, a federal criminal trial. And if you're waiting around for a freaking Boy Scout to get your trial, you're never going to do one, right? And so all this, you know, and that's, I get a lot of opportunities that way. I'll, I will jump in. You know, where people are just sitting there going, well, I don't know if I'm going to take it because it's got a bad fact in it. And I don't know if you can get it. It's like, you know, every freaking case has a bad fact in it, right? Like, you're never going to get – I mean, this is the other thing that night at law school, 
doesn't really teach for a while, you know, like there is no such thing as a freaking case where there's not a bad fact because then it wouldn't be freaking litigated. You know, like there's just this like people who are like waiting around for Mother Teresa as, as a client are never, ever going to, um, to a trial, <laughs> you know, or if they do get Mother Teresa as a client, they're not going to have the experience to represent her because they haven't done any other trials. So, you know. That's interesting. And so I'm curious, you know, a lot of, as you mentioned, the press that you've gotten has been around many of these Computer Fraud and Abuse Act hacking cases, but you, you have a practice outside of that. So I'm curious, you know, mining this particular statute and getting this attention, like, what has that meant for the growth and direction of your practice? It's been great. Like, this is something, too, I've had, you know, you have to think long term. And you got to weigh your choices, you know, against short-term gain versus long-term gains. And I represented a hacker in the UK, Larry Love, who was indicted in the Southern District of New York, the District of New Jersey, and Virginia. And the United States government was trying to extradite him. And I had a lot of people say, Tor, why are you working this guy for free in, in London? And like, you know, we're losing money on it and all this stuff like that. And I said, you know, I care about this. This is important. I want to do it. And I had to go over to London to do it. And in London, I met, you know, some of the top extradition lawyers in London who are now, you know, colleagues of mine and who now call me when they need to deal with the, you know, Department of Justice in an extradition matter. As a matter of fact, like a couple of weeks ago, I was in London, you know, on a matter that had nothing to do with computer crime. But, you know, I established trust with colleagues over there. And so it generated business for me outside of the computer crime context in an area you know, that I'm well familiar with because the computer crime context is essentially white-collar federal criminal defense. And I've had a uh, few clients over there where I've dealt with. I, I even did a white-collar you know, uh, LIBOR to London Interbank um, offering rate, uh, interest rate mitigation trial in the Southern District of New York I got through uh, having done pro bono work for a hacker that the United States government was trying to extradite. And we, we actually um, managed to, you know, block the extradition. And, you know, you just, the opportunities and, and taking the risks in one area put you in contact with a whole host of people. And those people aren't just people you're going to work with just on that case. They have practices too. And now you've broadened your network because, at least for me in my practice, my uh, I'm not a volume practice. You know, some people get their um, cases, you know, through advertising. A lot of tort lawyers do that in all sorts of different ways. For me, it's almost purely referral, and I work with a select client group. And it took me, you know, years to get to that point where people will call me up, you know, because I'm known in Silicon Valley or whatever. And you know, it's not just trials. Now they call me up if they're they need you know consulting on computer law or whatever. And now I get to be a little bit more picky about my pro bono cases, but if something really, I think is really cool or interesting or important, I will go do it if I can, you know, if it's intellectually interesting to me and I have the resources, um, well, I still kind of like, if I don't have the resources, I just go for it. I still have that habit, but, um, you know, I've been lucky that way, but it's been luck combined with a lot of hard work and, seizing the opportunity and not being afraid to take the risk. Um, because, you know, I've had a whole bunch of things fall flat too, right? But like you keep moving forward and, you know, on to the next project. 
Sure. And, and, you know, having had the opportunity to discuss kind of the story arc from 2011 to today, as you've uh, gone out on your own, I'm curious, uh, as we begin to wrap up, if you have any thoughts looking back retrospectively on your career, I mean, you've been very successful at building out this practice by, you know, essentially mining a vague statute in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, I, I'm curious just to your thoughts, looking back or, or talking to other attorneys, is this approach that you've taken a, a viable business plan for others thinking to strike out on their own or or not? Like, Where do you come down on that? I think it is minus my mistakes. <laughs> you know, like I, I, it took me a while to discover what my business model was which is, you know, to discover that it is a referral thing and that I like working with select clients. At one point I tried to do volume, you know, but that just, you know, I just worked on cases I wasn't interesting, interested in, you know, um, some people could do that or some people like to, you know, are good at it. They, they enjoy it. I would say that you can't avoid having to network in our business. Most of the clients in our professional services businesses, and this is true, I think, for like CPAs and uh, and other businesses, they they come through your referral network, and a lot of your referrals are going to come through other lawyers that you know or have met. So, yeah, you've got to work at your desk, but I think uh, a lot of people starting out don't they underestimate how much time you need to actually spend out there going to parties and uh, going to professional events and making yourself known and speaking and, you know, speaking at tiny events and not being, you know, being, you know, you don't want your name associated with something that's like horrible, but like go and speak to that student group with three people in it, you know, go and speak to that obscure group and just go and, you know, and slowly, slowly you'll start getting bigger and bigger things. But, but we're very much, at least my business is very much a referral business. And I wish I just really just understood that business model earlier it would have saved me some you know grief or as like playing with google adwords and crap like that that just for me didn't work and which again works for some people well i think some of those lessons will be useful to our audience that may be thinking about uh, doing something uh, similar to what you've done tor i really appreciate you taking the time to kind of share your story and, and to be with us today thank you for having me Tor Eklund is the managing partner of Tor Eklund Law. If you're interested to learn more about what we talked about today, check out abajournal.com for our show notes and relevant links. Meanwhile, if you like what you heard, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm Jason Taché for the ABA Journal. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.